It's so exciting to see God doing so many things. And there's so many testimonies that keep coming in. Uh, you know, people are just wandering in our church, you know, and then we have even some people from the, the hawkers uh, who have come here, brought their children to our special needs program, and they are starting to attend church. I just don't know what to say, except that God just do it more, right? But we're continuing because we also, as a church, want to prepare ourselves to conserve the fruit that God is giving to us. You know, God is giving fruit to us. We have been sowing for many years. After a long time of sowing, patiently waiting, agonizing, praying, you know, you see the sprouting. And you begin to see fruits and you say, God, how can we conserve it? Because you know how if you fall into background or it's not properly watered, you lose the fruit that God gives you. So we want to be grounded. Last week we talked about why it is important to be grounded in the Word and Spirit. Right? That's part of how we can keep the revival going. Today I want to talk a little bit more. And uh, we want to look at the Gospel of Mark. I hope you have started reading your Bible. Uh, some people have uh, written to me and asked me, Pastor, where can I get one of these reading programs? I've actually forwarded to Fan, and maybe we'll put up in our Telegram group soon so that you all can you know, maybe just start reading the Bible for yourselves. But today, we're in the Gospel of Mark, right? Last week we mentioned Mark and Priority. This is the first of the four Gospels to be written. Many scholars believe that, although some do believe uh, that you know, other Gospels may be written first. But I think the most probable uh, I'll explain to you some other time, is that these 16 chapters of Mark are the very first time it's been put together as a biography of Jesus in this way. Now, Mark is not just written as a chronological biography, you know, how Jesus was born and this and eventually how he died. It's not just that. It's actually crafted in order to convey a not-so-secret secret message. That's a message in Mark and it's designed to convey them for that message. Throughout the first Eight chapters, right? Mark 16 chapters. If you want to read, it's the shortest gospel. 16 chapters. The first half, the first eight chapters, according to the gospel, has one driving point. And that point is this. Who was Jesus? That's the question that Mark is asking, right? And he, he answers this in very many different ways. So, Everyone, as you go through Mark, everyone seems to know this answer. You look at Mark chapter 1, verse 24. The demons, they knew who Jesus was, right? But they were commanded to keep quiet. Why? Because it's a secret. Then in Mark chapter 2, verse 7, the scribes, they wondered, who is this who can forgive sins? This man can forgive sins. In Mark chapter 3, verse 22, the same scribes, they're wondering, who is this Jesus who can cast out demons? By what authority does he cast out these demons? And in Mark chapter 4, verse 41, even the wind and the waves acknowledge who Jesus was, right? They know who Jesus was. And then in Mark chapter 5, verse 6, again, the demons knew exactly who Jesus was and they begged for mercy. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus comes to his own hometown. And guess what? Nobody knew who he was. Nobody acknowledged his divine origins. Mark chapter 7, Jesus performs a multitude of miracles that only God can do. The deaf hear, the blind see, the dead are raised. Still, throughout all these chapters, the disciples are portrayed as being rather dense, right? They were not getting it. You know, Jesus was walking on water and they are asking themselves, who is this Jesus? The wind and the waves listen to Jesus. They wonder, who is this man? You know, when you read this, Mark is his crafting is making you frustrated. I said, how come you don't know? Everyone knows already. But the disciples still don't know until we get to 
Mark chapter 8. And this is the, the pinnacle of that drama. The drama has been building up. Who is this? Who is this? And everyone is like, yes, we know who is this, the Son of God. But the disciples are, I wonder who this guy is, right? And you build it up until Mark chapter 8. And that's, I guess, the heart of this gospel. Today we are looking at Mark chapter 8. And in verse 27 of Mark chapter 8, Jesus now brings all his disciples on a retreat. Right? They bring them on a retreat uh, to the foothills of Mount Hermon all the way up in the north, in a place that we call Caesarea Philippi. Many of us who have been uh, with our trips to uh, Israel have been to this place. It is also called Banias. Right? Banias because in that place is this great cave where they used to worship the god Pan. Pan as in panic or pandemonium. Right? It is is this God that looks like a goat, you know, and he blows a pipe and, you know, children follow him and, you know, you get the Pipe Piper story. That's the God of Pan. And people worship that. So, in this place, Banyas, far away from the hustle and bustle of the coastal towns and cities of the Galilee, away from Tiberias, away from Capernaum, they go all the way north to a retreat to this town of Caesarea Philippi. It says here in verse 27, now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? You see, all this, all this leading up is moving us towards this question. Who do men say that I am? Now up to this point, Jesus' identity has been, I guess, what you can call an open secret. It's supposed to be a secret, but anyone who reads it they will know, except the disciples, right? So the disciples kind of answered in verse 28, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. So who do people say Jesus is? Oh, it could be John the Baptist, maybe, right? Now, why does he say that? Why do they answer in this way? Because only two chapters before, in the Gospel of Mark also, we have Herod Antipas, not the same as Herod the Great, right? Herod the Great was the one who built Caesarea Philippi, but Herod and the past one of his descendants was the king. He had beheaded John the Baptist. So, you know, just two chapters you can read about. It. The reason he beheaded it, other than the fact that John had criticized his marriage, but he, Herod, was afraid of John's growing influence. John was immensely uh, influential. Most people fail to recognize this because the Bible doesn't say too much about John. But John was a very powerful figure. He was greatly influential and Herod was afraid that he might incite a rebellion. Right? And we're going to read this in some of the historical records. So in Mark, uh, in Matt, sorry, Mark chapter 6, verse 14, we are told that when Herod heard these reports, he inquired about Jesus. Verse 14 and 15, Now King Herod heard of him, that is, heard of Jesus, for his name had become well known. So prior to this, Herod only knew the name of John the Baptist. John and Jesus had this ongoing parallel ministry where John is baptizing people up the, near the Galilee in Anion and Jesus was baptizing people closer down to Judea. So here's what happens. They, uh, he heard about him and then he asked people. And people said, and he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead. The one he killed, the one he beheaded, he thought, Maybe he has come back from the dead, you know, because this guy is doing the same thing. He has the same sort of ministry. He's baptizing people. Maybe he has come back from the dead. And therefore, these powers are at work in him. Well, other people said it was Elijah, and others said it is a prophet. 
or like one of the prophets. So you can say Mark is actually kind of giving you the answers beforehand. He's kind of preparing you for this question. So the disciples answered accordingly. You know, some say John, some say Elijah, some say the other prophets. And then you move to the heart of the question, right? Verse 29, the real question that he really wants to ask. And Jesus now turns to his disciples and he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Now, this is the question that Mark wants to ask all his readers, right? Who do you say? And Peter answers, he says, you are the Christ. This is a very loaded verse, right? First of all, the key question. That was not just for the disciples. Again, remember, Mark is writing for you. He's not writing for the disciples. He's writing so that you will be presented with this question. After you've seen everything in the first eight chapters, after you've had this behind-the-scenes insight. You know things that the disciples don't know. You could see and hear the thoughts of everybody involved. You can even know what's in the mind of Jesus by reading the narrative. So when you have known all these things, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you think this Jesus is? Peter. He was the de facto head of the disciples. And the disciples have been arguably left in the dark all this while. So when, Jesus, uh, when Peter said, you are the Christ, what does this word Christ mean, right? The word Christ. Messiah, you are the Messiah, the one that the Jews have been waiting for. The one that they have been anticipating. So you are going to be the one who will, I guess, overthrow the Roman soldiers, right? Overthrow the Roman government and restore the kingdom to Israel. You are the one, right? You are the Christ, the messianic deliverer. And that's what the word of uh, Christ means. The word Christ comes from the Hebrew word Mashiach, which means anointed. You're the anointed one. And usually the only anointed ones are either the prophets or the kings, right? So you are an anointed king, the one that, you know, they're anticipating for a very long time. Ever since 167 BC, when, you know, the Maccabean brothers, they ejected the Greek government, right? They, they kicked out the Greeks and they established their own, what I call the Hasmonean, it's a Jewish kingdom, but later on, the Romans came over. They have been waiting for someone to do the same to the Romans. They are waiting. When is God going to send someone, an anointed one, to eject these Romans, all right? kick them out of the land so that we can re-establish an Israeli kingdom here? So they've been waiting and waiting and waiting, and now they're thinking, you're the one. You are the anointed one, the one that God is preparing for this great. But this is a plot twist. You understand? Because Peter was not supposed to know the answer. Peter is the kind of guy who suffers from the foot in the mouth disease. Always say the wrong thing on, right? So he, along with the disciples, are supposed to be left in the dark, but somehow he managed to come up with that's a twist in this story, right? Somehow he managed to come up with the right answer. And of course, to the relief of all the readers who say, ah, oh, finally, finally he gets this, right? Now with this realization. Something must have been going on in Peter's mind. He's putting two and two together. And certain, certain expectations were dawning upon him. Because, you see, if this was the Messiah, if Jesus is indeed the one that God has sent to deliver the Jews, well, that must mean that, you know, a great battle is about to ensue with the Romans. Because the Romans are not going to go out just like that, without a fight, right? So in his mind, he's like, wow, we are going... We are in for a big thing now. Something, a great conflict is about to happen because if Jesus is here, that 
there's a big war about, and we've got to prepare for this war. I, I'm guessing that this must be the kind of things that are going on in Peter's mind. So, of course, uh, we are not actually, Mark himself doesn't elaborate on this, right? Uh, you want a little bit more details about you know, what happened, you can read Matthew chapter 16, verse 17. and recommend you read that. It gives a bit more details, uh, but we're not touching that today. Right? We're not going there today because I want to look at something else. So Mark, in keeping with this secret knowledge theme that he has going, he has Jesus now telling his disciples, verse 30, he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. Very interesting. You would have thought that Jesus would want everybody to know about him, but you know, there's this kind of open secret thing going on here. Okay, so they're not supposed to talk about Jesus. Now, after this climatic revelation of Jesus' identity, it's not the end, it's just the first half. Now that you know who Jesus is, Jesus goes on to pull the curtains back even more to reveal what his mission was. Right? So this Chapter 8 is not just about who Jesus was now. It's about who Jesus was, but now that you know who he is, about his mission. So in the very next verse, in verse 31, he says, He began to preach to them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, must be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and then after three days, rise again. This one verse is the sum of the rest of Mark, pretty much. That's the, in fact, that's kind of the gospel, isn't it? Son of man comes, you know, suffers, rejected, killed, he rises again. So this one verse, the rest of the book kind of expands on this, just this one verse alone. But let's kind of pull back a bit and ask ourselves, why does Mark say son of man? Why doesn't he say Jesus? Right? He began to teach them that the Lord or Jesus or their master must suffer man. He uses this term son of man. Now son of man is a very unusual term, right? I mean, it can be a very usual term, Ben Adam, the son of Adam, which means all of us, we are all Ben Adam. We are all sons and daughters of Adam. We are part of humanity, as it were. But in Aramaic, there's another word, same meaning, but in Aramaic, Bar Enosh, which is used in apocalyptic literature like Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. When it's used like that, as son of man there, it refers to a messianic king, a divine supernatural king that comes from heaven who will reign, he will be in power, he will triumph, he will defeat his, uh, his enemies, and he will establish the kingdom of God. So I think what Monk is doing here is he's just using one word, very economical word, right? It's like when you say someone, oh, this guy is Superman. You know, you don't have to elaborate anymore. Everyone knows what Superman is. Can fly, can do everything, you know, impermeable to bullets and all that. All you need to say is Superman, you don't have to explain. Or he's Superman who can do this, you don't need. Because we have all watched the movie, we have all read the comics. In the same way, when he says, Ba'inosh, the son of man, he doesn't have to explain. Everybody knew it. Because they have all read, you know, the book of uh, Daniel, they have all read the book of Enoch, which is outside of the Bible, but a very interesting book, One Enoch, right? And it talks about the son of man in even greater detail. So, when he says this term, is a very loaded term. Everyone, he is the Son of Man? This is the one, right? So now he says, this Son of Man, this Messianic Deliverer, he must undergo four things. He must suffer. He must be rejected by his own people. He must be killed. And ultimately, he must rise again. Now Peter, who had just correctly identified Jesus, said, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are, I guess, the Son of Man. 
Now when he hears this, he reacts badly. You know, he reacts pretty badly. In verse 32, he spoke this word openly, and then Peter took him, that's Jesus, aside and began to rebuke him. Now think about the comedy in this, right? Peter just said, you are the Messiah. And now, Peter has just become the Messiah rebuker, right? He just pulled Jesus aside and corrects, you know, the Messiah. I mean, the audacity of him, right? So what was Peter's problem? Why was he so upset? You know, think about this for a while. Having realized that Jesus was the Messiah, he assumed that Jesus would go on to overthrow the Romans. So he was shocked to hear that Jesus would suffer, be rejected by his own people, the people that he's supposed to presumably lead against the Romans, but they reject him and he'll be killed. Wait a minute. If, if the Messiah gets killed, then what happens to these Romans, right? And so this this whole paradigm did not sit well with Peter. It wasn't what he expected. He, he expected a conquering king, a powerful, triumphant Messiah, right? Uh, he expected, the, I guess, the Messiah of Enoch, the son of man of Enoch, who comes in power and glory from heaven. Everyone can see, everyone trembles, run away. I mean, he's the, the triumphant king, the victor. So, Peter, as far as Peter was concerned, messianic success meant power and triumph. How else were they going to punish the Romans? You know, all this while they have been persecuted by these Romans. They have been kind of harboring all that bitterness in their heart. They say, you wait, just you wait. When the Messiah comes back, you're finished. Lah. You know? and sometimes we're all also like this, right? Some of us are, are probably thinking, you just wait, Jesus come back, I'm my boss, and you torture me. Uh, when Jesus come back, you will get what's coming to you. Come up and right? Sometimes we all Christians are like that, right? No, so holy. <laughs> no, we are forgive people. And, yeah? I guess some of us are just waiting for Jesus to come back because we want come up and for all these people are giving us trouble. We want them to get what's coming to them. I guess Peter was like that also. He was waiting for the time for these Romans to get what's coming to them. And to him, the Messiah was that time. But then, this Messiah is very disappointing. Lah. Huh? You're going to get killed by them? But that, where does that leave us? Where's my, my uh, justice coming? So, for his, you know, for his thinking like this, he earns himself a rebuke from Jesus. Right? A counter-rebuke, if you like. Verse 33. When he had turned and look at his disciples. That's Jesus, right? He rebukes Peter. He rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. Okay, putting aside the reference to Satan, I don't get into that whole discussion. Peter, according to Jesus, was not mindful of the things of God. He's thinking like how people would think, like how all of us would think. So what was Jesus talking about here? It has to mean that Peter's concern with triumph and power was misplaced. It was misaligned with God's strategy, first of all. Right? So Peter is thinking that, oh, this is how the kingdom is going to come. This is going to come. It's going to wipe out. God is going to crush all the enemies. Then the rest of them, now we are the guys in power. Now you are in power. Wait till the tables are turned. We will be in power and you will be, well, I guess, oppressed by us. Right? And Jesus is saying, no, you got this wrong. That's not how it is. It's not just about who has power, right? Now you got power, we are weak. The tables are going to turn. Now it's just flipped their way. And say, you know, you are thinking like a human being. You're thinking of revenge. Uh. You want to get revenge. 
And Jesus says, this is not the mind of God. God has a different strategy. Of course, Mark doesn't elaborate on it. Right? He's, a, he's, a, he's writing a narrative. He's not writing a theological document. He, doesn't, he leaves it right there. He just says, you're not thinking. And most of us are thinking, might is right. right? Whoever is powerful, you are right. But Jesus says, no, that's not the case. Right? It's not what they had expected. And maybe this came as a surprise to the disciples. Huh? Really? You mean there's some other way, right? Or perhaps even disappointment. Oh, you mean I'm not going to be able to... Yeah, I was like waiting a long time to, you know, to tell that Roman guard was giving me trouble. Oh, I was about to tell him, now you see. But now I realize I oh, can't do that. Huh? So maybe a bit of disappointment there. Secondly, Peter's reaction may have been motivated by his concern for Jesus. He doesn't want his friend to suffer. He does not want his master to be rejected or to be killed. And rejection sometimes can be worse than physical suffering. He did not want to see that happen. And so perhaps, you know, he thought, maybe I want to protect him from that. You know, what good after all is the dead Messiah. So to this concern, Jesus actually elaborates more. In Mark chapter 30, uh, 8, verse 34 and 35, the next two verses. Now this was so special that Jesus now, he stands up. I think he stands up. He calls all the other disciples up until this point, he was just talking to this small group of disciples, you know, Peter, James, John, perhaps, or maybe some of the other disciples. But now, Jesus calls all the other people. Why does he do this? Because what he was about to say is so important for everyone. This part is not a secret. This part, Jesus wants everybody to know. So he says, he called all the people to himself with his disciples also. And he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. Very interesting. And this, my friends, is at the heart of the gospel of Mark. All this while building all the way up and then playing out, this is at the heart of it, right? I mean, what is Mark writing for? He's writing for all of us. And this is what Mark is telling us. Anyone, not just one or two disciples, not just those who are really interested, anybody who wants to follow Jesus. Do we want to follow Jesus here? Yeah? So that means all of us also, right? So this is for all of us. Anyone who wants to follow Jesus, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow him. Now, you've got to think about this for a second, right? At this point in the story, Jesus has not died yet, right? He hasn't been crucified yet. He hasn't gone to the cross yet. As a result, the word cross does not yet carry all those Christological symbolism. It doesn't have all this meaning yet. Resurrection, power, you know, uh, defeating death. All this is not there yet. What is this cross here? It's a bit like a bit early in the story, if you like, a bit anachronistic. At this point, it was just the symbol of the Roman instrument of torture. Right? It means suffering. That's all it means. It doesn't mean resurrection from the dead. It doesn't mean the triumph of God. It doesn't mean all those other things that we will come to uh, attach to the cross. At this point, it simply is suffering. It is an instrument of torture. It's not what you will wear on your neck. Right? You will not wear you know, a gallow on your neck. You know, find a gallow. Maybe some people will. But you know, this is not uh, that cross. This is just suffering. So what does it mean here? Let's kind of cut, break, break this up a little bit. 
we have to deny ourselves. What does this mean? How do you deny ourselves? Or I'm not Daniel, not, not that kind of denial, because my name is Daniel, denial, right? You just change the letters a little bit. In this context, I think it means you have to forego the opportunity of escaping. Okay, escaping the pain, to choose an easier and more painless path, to deny yourself. Lord, not my will, but yours be done. I would like to get out of this cup of hot tea, but not my will, yours be done. That's to deny himself, right? It's not just any kind of deny himself. It's denial in relation to suffering. The denial, to deny yourself the opportunity to escape, to choose a more painless path. Taken together with a statement on the cross, Jesus is addressing our attitude towards suffering and the hard things in life. I want you to think about this. He's talking about how do you confront difficult things in life, particularly when they are difficult for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the kingdom. He's certainly not saying that this is a sin, right? To, to choose an easier way. He's not saying that it's a sin. But he, what he's saying is that if you want to follow him, you must be prepared to face these hard things. Because it's not an easy way. It's a narrow path. It's a winding path. Few are those who actually succeed in following Jesus. So he's saying it's going to be a hard path. If you want to follow me, you must have a certain attitude towards these difficult things in life, this suffering in life. Notice that Jesus called everybody, right? So this is not just for some people. This is a universal truth for all people. Jesus was fully aware that it is our universal trait for people to fear hardship, to avoid suffering. You trace this all the way down, it has to do with the fear of death, right? If you are alone and isolated, then your chances of dying is higher. If you are rejected from opportunities, then your chances of dying is higher. If you are suffering because of illness, then your chances of dying is higher. All these things basically funnel down into one fear, that is the fear of death. And Jesus is saying that, well, if you want to follow me, you cannot be afraid of dying. You cannot fear death, right? You cannot fear death. And this is the majority of us, right? Jesus knew something about this spiritual quest that sometimes we are not. So, I want to liken this. I want to give you an example to help you understand this a little bit better, what Jesus is talking about here. You know, I, I, I like computers. I write software. And sometimes in software, you are asked to you know, write algorithms, methods to solve certain problems. So, I'm going to give you a problem here, right? Your problem now is to find the highest peak, right? We all have a problem. We are trying to look for a highest peak. So, now you have to come up with a way. How are you going to have a way to find a highest peak. And let's say it's, it's at night, so you can't just look at the highest peak and go there, right? So you have to discover a highest peak. So one plausible way is that, first way, take one step, okay? Compare this to that. If this is higher than that, then keep going. Take one more step. On the other hand, you take one step and it's lower, then you go back. Go back to where you were and you try a different place, right? So in this way, eventually you're going to move higher and higher, you can look for the highest path, eventually you discover a peak, right? You find, you, you eventually get to a place where here also lower, everywhere you turn is lower, then you know you have discovered a peak. But here's the thing, you're not supposed to look for a peak, you're supposed to look for the highest peak, right? And in order to 
find the highest peak. Sometimes you, you may find a little hill here, right? You've got another hill. In order to find a higher mountain, you actually have to go down first. You have to go down before you can potentially find another mountain. But if you are come to a place where you say, you know, I found this, I don't want to let go. Uh, this is too much. I've worked too hard, too long to get to this place in my life. I cannot let go of this. This is where I'm comfortable with. This is where I'm familiar with. You know, I've invested so much in this. My skills are here. My competencies are here. Now you ask me to go down? That is denying yourself. You're going to deny yourself, right? You have to embrace this. You like the cross. And notice that this is not Jesus' cross. This it says, you must take up your cross. But Jesus doesn't need your help to carry His cross. He has already done that. But you need to carry your cross. You have to embrace your own suffering. And if you want to follow Jesus, you have to choose. Are you going to stick to your little hill? Or are you going to give up those things? All right? And there are many different things that may be standing in your way. To go lower is our embracing of our suffering and our pain. Embrace your suffering and your pain in life. You risk, you take a risk when you go lower because some may say, what happens if I go low and I, I never find another place as good as this one? Then I will be wasting all this effort and I may even give up this particular peak that I found. We are averse, as it were, to the cross. Instead of embracing the cross, we often find ourselves getting caught up with dealing with our pain, with our suffering. Instead of making use of the opportunity to move beyond the cross, to move beyond the pain, to find the next peak, we spend our time looking for reasons for our pain, right? We try to rationalize our suffering, rationalize our loss. We have convinced ourselves that if only we can explain our suffering in life, if only we can understand our pain in life and make sense of how that pain came about, we might somehow be able to you know, bring order to the chaos in our life, create a safer place and never again experience that pain. We are all about avoiding pain. Right? We want to avoid pain. We want to preserve our place there. We don't want to go anywhere. This is very good. Now, Jesus is saying that you can't do that. You, can't, you see, it's not about avoiding pain. It's about getting to a higher peak. But so much of our Christian life is caught up avoiding the cross. So Jesus says, you know, you want to follow me, you can't be caught up in this thing about pain. Yes, it is painful. Some of us struggling with loneliness with abandonment, disappointment, disillusionment. Some of us are struggling with physical pain or even just the day-to-day -day struggle to survive. We are struggling with these things, but Jesus says you've got to look beyond these things. You've got to look past these things. So he calls himself, he takes, says to them, you must deny yourself. Wow. You put it that way, it's a little bit harder, right? You must take up your cross. Take up his cross. We all have crosses. Your cross and mine may not be different. You also don't look at other people. How come the guy got a different cross? You know, you have to take up your cross, your own challenges, your own adversities, and follow me. And he says, whoever decides to save his life will lose it because you might think that, okay, I'm not going to go anymore. I'm very content. I'm happy with this little hill that I found myself upon. But you know, actually, global warming, like everything is sinking, like. So sooner or later, your heel also will sink. You know? I mean, there's no security in staying put. Some people uh, got this idea that if I don't move, nothing will happen to me. Uh, you petrify, uh, that's what happened, right? So we don't want that to happen, right? So Jesus, there's another two chapters down. 
right? Jesus continues to elaborate on this same idea. In chapter 10 of Mark, Jesus came up to another guy, right? This guy, he asked him to, this guys were asking him about, you know, how he can inherit kingdom and all that. In verse 21, Jesus looked at him, this rich young ruler, he, he loved him. And he said to him, one thing you like, okay, you've got everything, you've got this mountain, you know, this little hill that you've got, one thing you like, go your way, sell whatever you have, give to the poor, and you have treasure in heaven, and then come, take up the cross and follow me, right? So he says the same thing again, give up this stuff, embrace the journey, embrace this suffering, embrace this pain, embrace your mortality even, you follow me. This guy, the Bible says, he was sad at this word. He went away, sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He couldn't. His mountain, his little mountain, was too good. He couldn't see beyond that. You know, it's just like, no, this is too much. I, I, can't, I can't let this go. Now, many of us would not consider ourselves that rich. Nevertheless, Jesus extends the same invitation to all of us. This is for all Christians, not just for some Christians. This is the heart of the Gospel of Mark. Do not cling on to life and the comforts that we have attained in life. The Lord invites us to consider the possibility that there are higher peaks beyond the peak that you found. Can you believe that? Can you believe that if you let go of this thing, God will bring you to a higher peak? This young man, in trying to preserve his life as he knew it, the life that he has become accustomed to, he gave up that opportunity. He couldn't. He couldn't see. He couldn't believe that there was something higher, a higher peak. I think that's what's implied in this narrative here, right? Is that in embracing the cross, you will go down. But you have to go down first before you come. Just like Jesus, die first before you rise again. That is the, I guess, the gospel message. And ultimately, what you choose to embrace in life tells us what is really important to you, regardless of you know, whatever religious professions we might make, you know, actions speak louder than words. For this rich young ruler, it was the comfort of life. He couldn't walk away from it. He just couldn't. He couldn't deny himself. He couldn't see beyond. Now, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, I don't have that verse up, but Jesus himself is mentioning Jesus himself, right? Has this attitude. It says, looking unto Jesus, the author, the finisher of our faith, who, get this, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Okay, what's going on here? The cross. Did Jesus like the cross? No, he didn't like the cross. He wanted, he didn't want the cross, but he looked beyond the cross. Right? He saw beyond the cross, what did he see? He saw something joyful. He saw something, the perfect plan of God. So because of that, he says, you know what? I can do this. I can embrace this. So, despising the shame. He put aside the pain. He put aside the shame, the rejection. He put aside all these, you know, feelings that we struggle with. He said, you know what? It's worth it because there's something better beyond. And then, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's what the Bible says Jesus did. Jesus himself denied himself. He took up his cross. He went for a higher mountain. I guess for us today, our response to this invitation of Jesus is, first of all, to confront our own fears. I don't know what you're afraid of in life. We are all afraid of something in life. You know, nowadays, starting to be a bit more afraid of old age, <laughs> some of us, 
Some of you are already there. Nothing to be afraid of, lah. You know, already there, already. You know. Some of us are afraid of illness and sickness. You wake up, thank God I'm not ill, you know, because there's so many horror stories about people getting sick. Some of us are afraid of pain and the discomfort. Some of us are afraid that as we get older, we might become more and more lonely and there'll be nobody for us. Some of us are struggling with recognition, with rejection, with all kinds of problems. Some of you are struggling in your work. You just can't take it anymore. Your mental stress is at a very, very limit that you can endure. Some of you are struggling with disappointment in life. You've been hurt. So you're carrying pain around with you. You have to confront these things. This is your cross. Not the cross of Jesus. This is your cross. Jesus says, if you want to follow Him, you have to rise above this thing. Your commitment to the cross has to be greater than your feelings about these things in life. They're very real. It's not diminishing the reality of the struggles we have. But it is a fact also that unless we can, I guess, rise above these things, right? Transcend these problems, it's going to be very hard to follow Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying. Unless we do, unless we surrender and say, you know what, Lord? I don't know if I'll ever escape this. But if this is what you want for me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it, take the bull by the horns. I'm going to get through this and I'm going to follow you. Because... I know that beyond this cross, there's a higher peak. There's a greater glory. There's a perfect plan and will of God for all of us. And that's the challenge. Who do you say that Jesus is? If He really is the Christ, then follow Him. Lord. If it's not, then don't follow. But if He really is, then you follow Him through thick and thin of life, through the valleys of life, however much it might be. You know, if He is the Christ, follow Him. Otherwise, otherwise don't follow Him at all. Let's close our eyes even as we pray. Lord, we want to thank you for this. It's so interesting, this whole revelation about the purpose and the message of the gospel to us directly. Father, you know that we struggle with many adversities in life. We have a great many fears that conspire to thwart our journey towards you, to prevent us from finding not just a peak, it prevents us from finding the highest peak that invites us often to settle for something less than your perfect will and purpose for us. But today, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit will help us remember every time we sing that song, I have decided to follow Jesus. It means that we have decided to carry our cross to follow you just as you carried your cross. So help us, Lord, across this room today. Perhaps there are some of us who are in some very difficult places may not find the strength to be able to do this. God, in your grace and mercy, Lord, would you lift us up, give us the strength that we lack so that we may not falter when we follow you. In the name of Jesus, we ask and we pray. Amen. Amen. Shall we stand together as we sing this closing song? When I
So Father, we once again we bring ourselves to you. We need your help, Lord. In this season of revival, when we want to press in towards you, Lord, help us not to have divided loyalties. Help us to be clear about who our Lord is. Help us to be courageous and brave to take up our cross and follow you, Lord. So, Lord, we we know that when we do this, we are not shortchanging ourselves. We are choosing the best because sometimes the good is the enemy of the best, Lord. We're choosing what's better than what we have. So, thank you, Lord. Thank you that you help us. You do not leave us alone. We make this journey with brothers and sisters together. And Lord, now even as we go from this place, may you just keep these things mindful. And blessing of God Almighty, the blessing of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be with all of us. Remain with us and our families now and always. Amen. Amen. Service is over. God bless all of you. Please join us in the atrium for some fellowship, and I'll see you back next week.